to be in 2 Peter. <clears throat> We're approaching the end of 2 Peter. We've been in that book for a few weeks. This is the fourth week. And this, this section of Peter is really should be seen as one section, but it would be too long of a sermon, all right? So I'm sort of splitting it up into three, and depending on how this morning goes, could be four parts, okay? And Peter's addressing false teachers, in the church. And so we need to define that because we're not just, he's not just aiming at like every bad idea in the world. Okay. Cause there's a lot of those. What he's aiming at is heresy within the church. And heresy is a specific word that is referring to false teaching that comes up from within the Christian church, not accusations from the world. He's addressed that in first Peter extensively. He'll get into it a little bit in this section, but his main focus here is Christians, or people who call themselves Christians, we should say, who were in the church, who were living some kind of what he calls a sensual lifestyle, okay? And I have a theory about what that is, and I'm going to mention it this morning. But they're also, they've got some kind of theological, you know, even if it's a made-up theological backing or support for their lifestyle, and they're kind of saying, look, we're not just... We're, they're boasting in this sinful thing that they're doing, and they're drawing other Christians in the church into that same idea, okay? And he is intense. It's maybe the most intense you're going to see Peter in his writing is he is going to great lengths to articulate how awful <laughs> this is and how dangerous it is, and he uses the strongest language I think he can come up with and still be somewhat appropriate for this thing. So what I'm going to do is we're going to finish reading this section because I want you to see how, how important this is to talk about. And then I'm going to branch out a little bit into some heresies that have come into the church since he wrote this because this doesn't come up very often. And I don't think I've ever used some of these words <laughs> that I'm going to use this morning. Um, to talk about something, because it just doesn't come up that often. And I'm going to pick three that we should, that I think are important. There are many more we could talk about, but we're going to do three, and we'll see how long it takes. We may end up finishing it next week, all right? So let's look at Second Peter chapter 2, the second half of verse 10 through verse 22. He says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though great in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. I think that's part of why he's upset, is they are enticing unsteady souls. He says, they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. 
They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in terror. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's Peter. I mean, I can't, if I sat down to, if I was really upset, and I sat down to write something, I don't think I could come up with the strongest language as he does. That's scripture. This is why we need to pause for a minute and realize that false teaching is not just irritating because it's wrong false teaching within the church is bad because it leads people astray right and that's why peter is taking so much time to deal with it though peter is combating a specific heresy in his day regarding some kind of lifestyle of sensuality and teaching that promotes it it might be helpful for us to look at some of the heresies that have plagued the church so i want to look at some of those specifically gnosticism Arianism and Pelagianism. Now, if, if you're like, those, those words are weird, I don't want to, don't worry, you don't have to remember those words, all right? Um, they're named after very old words. These are very old but still current heresies, okay? So let's look at each of these. I may only get through Gnosticism today. We'll see. That's a particularly current one, I think. Um, Gnosticism was originally thought to have emerged from within very early Christianity, but actually we found out that it's even older than that. It's sort of the original heresy, okay? And as I define it, I think what you'll see is that, oh, this is actually really familiar to me. (laughs) I see this all the time. Despite the old-sounding word, it's a very current thing. Gnosticism has a varied and complex history. It's really interesting to read about because there's a lot of different kind of sects within it, and all of them dislike each other because they all feel like they have the answer and the key They have the special secret knowledge that they alone hold in their little subset. So they don't generally, you you can find old writings of them arguing with each other. Um, So here are the basic characteristics. One, God is incomprehensible, unknowable, and fully transcendent. Gnostic texts often speak of God as being beyond our ability to even know or perceive at all. In fact, some texts talk about God being so far beyond our plane of existence that it's as if he does not exist at all. Now, that sounds, on the face of it, really holy, right? God is great. Don't we believe that? God is beyond me. He's higher than me, right? But he has chosen to actually reveal himself to us 
and he is perceivable by us. We can know him. We can perceive him because he has said, I want you to know me. He is not beyond our ability to perceive. And the second thing is the world is divided into two separate realms, physical and spiritual. The physical world was created by a lesser deity, which is not God. And the material world is completely isolated and separate from the spiritual. All humans contain a divine spark. Maybe you've heard that before. This is, well, think about how old this is. This is pre-first century. And we're still hearing this. And that divine spark is trapped in the physical body and in the material world. The physical world is inherently evil and functions like a kind of prison keeping human beings from salvation and from unity with God. Everything that you can touch, feel, smell with your senses is evil and wicked and is a part of this prison system that entraps this divine spark within. And if you could only release your divine spark, you could be one with this unknowable, imperceivable God. Gnosticism promotes either, either severe hatred of the body through physical deprivation, that's called asceticism, Paul talked about that, or licentiousness and sensuality since the physical has no impact or connection to the spiritual. All right, So you can have two different manifestations of this one idea that the physical world is unimportant and disconnected from the spiritual. One is, well, we should hate the physical and so there's this strain of Gnosticism that's anti-self, anti-physical, anti-body. It's about beating yourself, hating yourself, hating the physical world, and trying to ascend over that and be a super spiritual person. The other side of it, other manifestation is, well, who cares? If, what, if the physical world has no impact on the spiritual, then I can do whatever I want. If it feels good, I can go crazy. Whatever feels good, who cares? It has no impact. And I think this is quite possibly what Peter's addressing in Second Peter in the church. Is that particular manifestation of Gnosticism is Christians saying, well, look, I'm saved. My divine spark has been connected with the divine. I am free. And so my, the physical realm is just a prison. And so if it's just a prison, I can treat the prison however I want to, and I can do whatever I want, and I can call it good. It's quite possibly that is the thing that it certainly fits his descriptions. Okay, so the third characteristic is the basis of salvation is secret knowledge, secret revelation. They believe that the revelation of this secret knowledge is what would set a person free to be fully divine. The way you get your spark free <laughs> is to have this secret information about the divine that is held in secret and only one person gets it isn't that convenient only one person gets this secret knowledge every different gnostic sect believed they had the secret knowledge of course nobody was going we don't have it does anyone have it they're all going we got it come to our thing right come to our guru but all of it had to do with this some kind of mythology about the spiritual realm. It was incredibly kind of made-up mythology stuff, stories and things. This secret knowledge is revealed to one human mediator who then is tasked with the burden of spreading that knowledge to everyone to set everyone's divine spark free. This is starting to feel a little weirdly familiar. 
It sounds a lot like a lot of the Christianity we see today, doesn't it? The primary feature of Gnosticism was and is that the stark separation between the physical and the spiritual. So what about today? These are just my observations. All right, you might have more than me. These three characteristics, I think we find them all over the place. The truth is, God is knowable, not unknowable. But the idea that God is far beyond the reach of everyone except for a few, he's imperceivable unless you have the key, unless you know the right person or persons. And now they can be the mediator between you and this unknowable, unfathomable spirituality that is beyond you. They are the gateway to that insight. This feels right because God is transcendent. We use that word, rightly so. But he has also made himself known to not just us, but to anyone who is seeking him. There is no leveling up of Christianity to where you have access to God that other people don't have. Right? There's no Christian 2.0. It's just Christian with full access to God through Christ, or it's just not a Christian. There's no Christian, yeah, but, you know, when you get hold of this teaching, brother, then you'll really be ready. You'll be ready for what God has for you when you get a hold of this revelation God gave me. Access to God is mediated by the spiritual leader, the prophet, the guru, the pastor, whoever it is. And in my experience with this, it's not, it's quite often it's not the senior leader of a church that is the spiritual guru. Quite often it's someone else that everybody looks to as sort of the really spiritual person who has all the dreams and visions or always sees between the lines of the scripture and perceives things that no one else perceives. And there's a kind of hoarding of this revelation for the select few people who are in their circle. Christians who have received this new teaching are deemed ready for the next teaching, and these so-called revelations and insights cannot be accessed by any natural means, but only through supernatural means and coaching by the guru. You can't just read the Bible and understand it just with the Holy Spirit showing you. You have to have this special insight. You can't understand what God is doing in your life without someone else telling you what it is. This antagonism between the spiritual and the physical. We see this everywhere. People pitting believing versus doing. Faith versus works. Prayer versus service, spirit versus word, heart versus mind, all of these false dichotomies, like they don't actually go together. Like somehow, maybe, is prayer more holy than actually serving? No. If you separate them, you have a problem. If you're serving and not praying, that's a problem. If you're praying and not serving, that's a problem. If you have faith with no works, you don't have faith, right? Faith and works go together. Believing and doing. If you believe something in faith, you will do things in faith, right? Spirit versus word. The idea that 
experiencing the Holy Spirit is separate from studying and understanding and learning about God through his word is a crazy separation. The idea that our heart is against our mind and that somehow they're separate things is also crazy and unbiblical, by the way. These are all false dichotomies, and they all, I think, spring forth from this central idea of Gnosticism, which is material, physical things, the pursuit of knowing God intellectually versus knowing God experientially. All those things are very Gnostic. The place where I see it maybe most often is when people die at a funeral. And people will start to say things like, this is just this person's shell. Their body is just their shell. It's not really them. Their real person is their spirit person. And that person is with Jesus. Of course he is, that person is with Jesus. But the body matters. God, God doesn't separate you from you, right? Because one day, there's a whole thing in the Bible about putting you back together with you. you. Forever, you will look like you. Like, whatever you look like, like in your, I, I like to think whatever your best version of you is. <laughs> you know? The you that you imagine in front of the mirror. Not the you you see in the mirror, but the one you imagine could potentially exist. That, I imagine, is what you will look like. But you'll look like you. It's one of the great things when we study Revelation that's so encouraging to me is that we have a physical existence forever. But we, and there's this weird Gnostic thing that worms its way into our perspective on ourselves that just goes, ew, me. I just want to be a spiritual thing. And we see it, it pops up when people die because we don't know quite how to handle it. It's why it's important for us to treat, I mean, maybe this is morbid, but I don't think it is. Like, when else am I going to say this stuff, right? It's important to treat a body with dignity, isn't it? Living or dead. To treat people with physically with dignity and honor and to respect your own body and respect other people's bodies. That in and of itself is a violation when we don't do that because you're violating the person because God made us physical and spiritual beings, right? To see where this Gnosticism thing really does worm its way into a lot of surprising areas. The elevating of the spiritual over the physical. I find a lot of times different people you know, my wife is a servant type. She loves to serve. It's like her love language. It's the way she sees the world. And some people are not that way. We tend to be leaned towards, I just want to sit in a prayer meeting and bask. You know? And we tend to be either or, don't we? In charismatic circles, we tend to be like, let's just have four-hour-long praise services, but I'm not sure about the whole serving thing. Right, and we shouldn't pit them against each other. It's been a, that's a heresy, that's or the fruit of a heresy. All right, let's move on to Arianism and Pelagianism. I'm going to put these together. They're not the same thing at all, but I think it's helpful to see how these different ideas, when they team up together, which they do 
in our church cultures, when they team up together, they kind of make babies. <laughs> like demon child babies, like new heresies that are just the spawn of two others, right? And this is what happens in history. And for me, it's very helpful to see that. So I want to do that a little bit with Arianism and Pelagianism. Arianism is the false teaching that was begun by Arius of Alexander in the 4th century. He began teaching that Jesus did not have a divine nature, but instead he was created by God. That was the basic idea, but it has fruit all over the place. So Arius believed that Jesus was not equal with God. He was a creation of God, okay? That was the core heresy. The result of this belief is that Jesus becomes nothing more than a fully actualized man. He is the ultimate human, which he was and still is, but that's not all he is, right? See how that's tricky? The same thing with Gnosticism about elevating God to this unknowable place. Like, well, yeah, that's partially true, but it's not all of it, right? God has made himself known. In the same way here, we see the same idea of taking something that is true and taking it to an extreme that's not true. Jesus is seen as a man at his apex, a fulfillment of man's greatest potential and nothing more than that. So under Arianism, Jesus is a model to to reach for, which ultimately marries itself with humanism. If you just make Jesus a model of good behavior, which is how the world sees him, by the way, most people in the world don't have a problem with Jesus. Because they haven't read what he said. They just say he's a good model teacher. That is Arianism. They are repeating back to us the heresy that we taught them thousands of years ago. That Jesus is just a model human. He's like the ultimate moral example of a good person. But he is not a savior who died because you cannot be as holy as him. It is an impossibility for you on your own. That's why he had to die. That's why he rose again. And that's why he sent the Holy Spirit to make you holy like he is holy because you cannot. This is Arianism. So you can see how this marries up nicely with humanism. You reduce the Christian faith down to working really hard to be like Jesus and leaving out the Holy Spirit's job of sanctifying you. Christianity becomes just another way to self-actualize and be the best that you can be. You see this in our altar calls quite often. Come up, become a Christian. Why? Because then all your dreams will come true. (laughs) You will be the best version of yourself that you can be. He will solve all your problems. Life will be easier. This feeling, this weight of difficulty in your life will go away, and everything will be great. And quite often it is for a season, and then trials come. Gail's like, amen to that. <laughs> so hold that idea in your head. I'll explain Pelagianism to you and see, show you how they go together. Pelagianism is the false teaching that original sin did not affect the will. Each child is born with a blank slate and a will that is bent towards good. So the fall was, like, important. It was a thing, but it didn't affect your will. So you're born with a good will. You're born with, like, 
and, and a, 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 you're leaning towards good and it's just your surroundings and the sin in the world that causes people not to be good. The problem with that is if men and women are basically good and just let people do what they desire and it'll be right. So you don't discipline children. You just set them free. You don't tell them which way is right and which way is wrong. You just let them choose for themselves because they will choose what's right. Part of this is that God responds to us and not us to him. God made us good from the beginning, and it is our goodness that draws him to us. God looks at me and goes, wow, what potential you have. I want that guy on my team. He's a winner. That is not how God acts. None of us are winners. We're all losers in that sense. We were born in depravity. And it's God who makes us good by his spirit. All right, so how do these go together? So you combine these two heresies and you end up with a humanistic false Christianity that tells people to follow their heart and that God's greatest desire is for them to be happy and unobstructed in their dreams. How's that? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? You take the fancy words out and you just look at the description of that and you start to say, oh, this, this is old, but it's current, right? Add in a dash of pragmatism, which just says if the result is good, the activity was good. The ends justify the means. And these are the heretical foundations of modern-day prosperity gospel and all of its love children. (laughs) So if someone is healed, encouraged, or made rich, then the teaching must be from God. The validation of the teaching is in what we call the positive results. The problem, of course, is that the Bible does not just talk about suffering as something to avoid. It talks about it as a tool in God's hand to make you holy. And God is always more concerned with your holiness than he is with your immediate happiness. Another way to put that, if that sounds negative, it is a little negative. God's more concerned about your eternal joy than your momentary joy. Just like you are more concerned with your children's lifelong joy and success than with their immediate happiness so you say no to them now which builds character in them to learn that they should say no to themselves because you know that's going to set them up for a joyful life right you know where it's going god does the same thing with us if god is only a moral example then we are left to achieve holiness ourselves instead of receiving holiness from christ that sounds like bondage to me but it's sold to you as freedom. Follow your dreams, be yourself, self-actualize in a Christian sense. Attain the moral example of Jesus because that's all he is. And here I have some secret teachings that if you will just do these things, give money to the right things and the right amounts, following the right percentages, to the right ministry, reach out and touch the screen, at the appropriate time, buy the book, go to the conference, you will be blessed, and the blessing is validation that I was right. And this is a terrible combination of all of these things. I think if Peter were alive today, he'd be ranting about those two. 
See, I believe the church right now, 2020, is headed for revival, not just Living Hope Church, Amen. but the whole church. I think there's a growing consensus about that, and I don't think it's just wishful thinking. But if you look at church history, at revivals that have come, every single one of them have been wonderful blessings for the church and for the world, but at the same time, they have been like breeding factories for heresies. Heresy spreads faster and larger during times of revival than times of not. I don't know why. I think there's reasons, some reasons for that. I think it just attracts certain people. And you have a lot of new Christians knock, running around. You know, it's like being a new Christian is like giving a chainsaw to a baby because God gives them gifts. <laughs> and they're powerful gifts. And they run around just, right? Just, and it's a wonderful, blessed mess, right? You, you were there, every one of you. And you're just going, wow, God speaks to me. This is what God says to you. This is what God says to you. And you're right like a third of the time. Everybody's just bloody. Well, that's all right. But it's one of the reasons why these things are important. You see the same scenario happening here with Peter. He's speaking into a church that has been pushed by persecution out. And it is revival. Like they probably didn't feel like it was. They probably felt like, man, this is the worst time to be a Christian in history. Like, this guy Nero's getting crazy. You know, they're coming for people. They're, they're ransacking the temple. We can't even get to the temple anymore. They thought this was terrible. Peter's looking at it and going, the gospel's going out. And he's saying, and when the gospel goes out, when revival comes, we need to keep our eye on the truth. Because it will destroy what God is doing. And it will lead these people astray. I think Peter, above all, had a pastor's heart. I know he was an apostle. But I think he was deeply concerned about the people in those churches. And that they are protected. So it would be strange for someone to teach these things outright. I don't know of a Gnostic church. I'm sure there is one somewhere. Right, where they're saying, welcome to the church of Gnosticism. Or, right, that's uncommon. But where we see these things is when they, like I said, they combine in these weird ways and the characteristics come out. And I think the better we are just recognizing that's squirrely. Like, I don't know what to call it, <laughs> right? But that's not right. I'm not following that thing, right? All right, let's pray. We'll do some more next week. God, I just pray now that, one, we do ask you for a revival. God, I, I believe I can see you just laying all of this little stuff over the past six months and before that, laying the foundation for revival in your church. God, help us to keep our eyes on you and help us, God, to be able to navigate the complexities of false teaching inside the church and outside the church. There are so many, the culture is changing rapidly, makes our, my head spin. And there's all of that, which is trying to understand the worldviews that are out there and difficult to navigate. But then inside the church, there's things that are difficult. And God, I just pray that for Living Hope Church first, that you would just protect us from those things. 
God, that we would not fashion you after our own image, but that we would let you be God, that we would let you be transcendent, that we would let you be near us, God, that we would receive Jesus as he is, not as how we often imagine him to be. God, make us a church that is strong and secure and full of life. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Love you guys. We miss you so much if you're online, and we'll see you next time.